If you've got a Bible, you want to open up to Luke chapter 16. We're going to work with kind of the first half of that chapter this morning. As you get yourself situated, I just want to kind of tag into the end of that announcement. We're very excited for Libby to be able to get <clears throat> that time uh, away. Like Jamie said, she has been the children's pastor here for 30 years. Over the course of our services this morning, um, there have been multiple families here who mom and dad had Libby as a children's pastor, and now their children have Libby as their children's pastor, which is just such an incredible picture of her faithfulness and her service and consistency here in the life of our church. And so we're very excited for her to be able to get uh, some time away. So she's here today. She'll be here next Sunday. And then Monday the 17th is when she'll start into that sabbatical and she'll basically be gone through uh, the end of February. And so if you get a chance to just thank her, encourage her before she starts her time away, um, I would implore you to go ahead and capitalize on that opportunity. Sound good? Awesome. Um, It's been a while since we've been in Luke. If If you've been with us for you know, quite some time. We've been tracking through Luke for about a year, but we paused when we got to the Advent season and we did something else. And then I was sick last week. And so it's been almost two months since we were last in the gospel of Luke. And when we last did that, we, were, we took two weeks to look at the parable of the prodigal son, which is the end, or actually uh, the back half of Luke chapter 15. Now we're gonna jump into Luke chapter 16. And I wanna sort of help situate us contextually there. Picture yourself, at like an amusement park or you're at a, a mall or something and you walk up to the big map and it, there's a star that says, you are here. That's where I want us to start. Let's remind ourselves where we are. So big picture in the gospel of Luke, the first three and a half chapters really to the middle of chapter four are all about just sort of introducing Jesus. This is his birth, his early life. This is who this child is supposed to be. And then in the middle of chapter four, Four, uh, in verse 16, Jesus starts into his early ministry, and that goes all the way to late in chapter 9. All of that takes place in an area called Galilee. It's up in the north of Israel. Jesus' ministry during that time, though it, there are moments of teaching that take place in that chunk, it's mostly about the miracles that Jesus performs. He's healing people, he's multiplying food, he's casting out demons. It's a lot of action and activity in Jesus' ministry. And then Luke tells us at the end of chapter nine that Jesus determines to go to Jerusalem or he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And from the last part of chapter nine all the way through the middle of chapter 19 is what gets lumped together into this travel narrative. Jesus is traveling from north in Galilee, south to Jerusalem. It's a long walk. And along the way, Luke records for us much of what would be Jesus's teaching. Now, there are still some miracle accounts that take place. And there was some teaching in the early portion. But a lot of the most well-known parables and statements from Jesus's teaching ministry happen in this travel narrative in the gospel of Luke. And we are just sort of right in the middle of that. We're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. And in Luke 15 and Luke 16, we get a string of parables. Luke 15, there were three of them, parable of a lost sheep, parable of a lost coin, then the prodigal son. Then you get to Luke chapter 16, and there's a parable about this dishonest manager, and there's another parable or story about a rich man and Lazarus. Just a real quick word about sort of the uniting of these two chapters together. 
There's a similar audience to both of them. Jesus is teaching his disciples, but there's this large crowd that's also got some Pharisees or religious elite from the day that are present there. And Jesus' disciples and the people that have gathered to hear him teach, they come to listen so they can learn from Jesus. They wanna be near this man who is proclaiming the kingdom of God. The Pharisees by this point in Jesus's ministry are listening to him with a lot of skepticism, a lot of contempt. And they're to the point where they're trying to trap Jesus in something that he says so they can have him arrested. So they're listening and their hearts are definitely not seeking to like glean from what Jesus has to say. They wanna wanna trap him. They've grown weary of this man and his ministry and his popularity and they're trying to put an end to what it is that Jesus is doing. Both chapters involve parables, which are stories or illustrations that Jesus uses in order to make one point about the kingdom of God, who God is, what it means to follow him, what the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, what that's like. And they're stories that deal with something that would have been familiar to Jesus's audience. And there's a thematic thematic tie between the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, and what we're gonna see today at the start of chapter 16. So if you've got your Bible open there, look at Luke 15, verse 13. It says this, not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Then look at the start of chapter 16, verse one. Now he said to the disciples, that's Jesus, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. Both of these parables deal with someone who is squandering the possessions of someone else. The parables both sort of thematically deal with the fact that in the first one, there's a father who gives the inheritance to the son and the son goes off and he blows that money, the father's goodness and kindness and blessing to him on wild living. And then it's almost as if Jesus says, while we're talking about squandering the father's goodness, let me give you another illustration that deals with this same topic. Or it's possible that as Jesus was traveling and teaching and he would commonly repeat sermons or illustrations or parables, whatever the case might be, something like the Sermon on the Mount. That's not something that Jesus did one time and then he moved on. That was something that as Jesus traveled and taught in different settings, he would return to. Some of these parables are the same way. So it's possible that Luke, having heard uh, the recounting of these parables from Jesus' teaching ministry multiple times, said, you know what? I'm gonna group these next to each other. Did Jesus always say them back to back? Maybe. Did he have to always say them back to back? Also, maybe not. Luke's intent in his gospel is theological. So he takes the themes and keeps them together. Or as it was passed on to Luke, Jesus would teach on these things back to back. But the thrust in the second parable is different. It's pretty straightforward in the first parable. The younger son blows the father's possessions and you learn something about the nature of who God is by the way the father responds to both the younger son and the older son in that parable. In this parable, things are a little bit cloudier. In fact, this parable is one of the more confusing passages in the gospel of Luke. So conceptually, we need to kind of prepare ourselves for the challenge that exists in this. In your own quiet times, in your own times with the Lord, it's very likely that you would read the parable of the dishonest manager here, finish with it and say to yourself, huh? And then just move on. It's confusing. 
Pixar, the animation studio, has a maxim where they say that the story is king. By that, they mean you could have great animation. The cars can be very whimsical when they talk to each other. The balloons can look very captivating on screen as it lifts the house up onto a cliffside. The fish can look very compelling in the ocean. But if nobody cares about the story, all of that falls flat. You've got to actually care about what happens to Lightning McQueen or what happens in Finding Nemo in order for the animation to matter to you at all. Today, clarity is going to be king in this parable. So it's gonna take a little bit of time to walk through it and try to sort it all out. But as is true in any biblical passage, when the understanding is muddy, misapplication is the result. If the understanding of the passage is unclear or murky, applying it correctly becomes very, very difficult. And so we're gonna spend some time really trying to understand this parable. In fact, it's notoriously challenging J.C. Ryle, who was a pastor in the 1800s, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, says this about this passage. The passage we have now is a difficult one. There are knots in it which perhaps will never be untied until the Lord comes again. We might reasonably expect that a book written under inspiration, as the Bible is, would contain things hard to be understood. The fault lies not in the book, but in our own feeble understandings. If we learn nothing else from the passage before us, let us learn humility. So with that sort of framing what we're about to do, let's pray and then we'll read the first half of Luke chapter 16. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, my prayer is that your Holy Spirit would meet us here, that your Holy Spirit would take the truth of your word and illustrate for us clearly what it is that Jesus is trying to say. God, would your Holy Spirit take your word, implant it into our hearts so that it's profitable to our souls? Would your Holy Spirit take your word, implant it into our hearts so that it's beneficial for life to the full here and now? God, would your Holy Spirit take your word, plant it into our hearts? God, that we might learn what it means to be faithful in relationship with you. Would your Holy Spirit take your word and plant it into our hearts as a congregation that we might more faithfully proclaim the truth of the gospel and your glory to the ends of the earth? God, do that according to your power among your people. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here's the plan. Our first challenge in this particular parable is to make sure that we hear it the same way Jesus's audience would have heard it. So we're gonna take some time to try to get into the same mindset as Jesus's first century listeners. Then we'll work with the parable and try to get clarity on exactly what's happening, including one of the the knots that J.C. Ryle talks about. Then we'll look at Jesus's lessons that he takes from the parable, how he interprets it for us. Then we'll get to the application at the end. And the landing point this morning is this that followers of Jesus steward God's blessings in light of God's kingdom with eternity in view. That we are to steward God's blessings in light of God's kingdom with eternity in view. Step one, how do we hear this parable as Jesus's listeners would have heard it? Let me read it kind of slowly and then we'll tackle that, that challenge. This is Luke 16, one through 18. Now he said to the disciples, 
There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to him, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Thus says the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Hearing this through first century ears. The challenge is that our lenses for listening to any story are very different than Jesus' listeners' lens would have been for listening to him. When we hear a story, we tend to subconsciously work in one of two ways. The first way is we work within a framework of a villain and a hero. Like picture your favorite Marvel movie. There's a bad guy and a good guy. And you're obviously rooting for the bad guys to be overcome by the good guys. And you're just waiting for how that's going to play itself out. We take that and we sort of subconsciously listen to this story. And it means we're trying to figure out who am I rooting for? The rich master? The manager? Who am I supposed to latch on to? But the challenge with that is that none of these characters would have been the good guy to Jesus's original listeners. And that's because being rich was not automatically assumed as virtuous. Most of Jesus's listeners were very poor. And they, the assumption at the time was that if you got wealthy, you did so at the expense of other people. So you were not to be praised as virtuous. So you look at the characters in the story. Would you be rooting for the master or the owner? No, he probably got rich by exploiting other people. He's not someone that you would be rooting for. Well, what about the manager then? He just works for the owner. Well, look at the manager's actions. He's looking to take advantage of people for his own good the same way that they would think that a rich person would. The manager would kind of be like a tax collector in those times. Tax collectors would show up to your house, say you owe this much, but they only gave a portion of that 
to the government and they charged you more so that they could take some for themselves, this manager would be that way. The master, the owner expects me to give him X amount for the olive oil or the wheat or whatever it is, but I need to make a living too. So I'm going to raise the price so that I profit as well. Then I'll give what the master expects over to the master. You're not rooting for the manager either. Who does that leave? The debtors? That's maybe who they would identify most with. It's not exactly a Robin Hood story. It's not like somebody's stealing from the rich to give to the poor. The debtors aren't even really a factor in the story. You just move past them very quickly. So it's not like a hero villain thing to work out in this. The other way that we tend to listen to stories, the other sort of subconscious framework that we have is just for the thrill of a good story. Picture, if you're familiar with it, the movie Ocean's Eleven. There's a guy who owns a casino. There are 11 guys who band together to rob the casino owner. The movie ends, the casino owner has lost millions of dollars, but you don't really feel bad for him. You're just kind of like, well, well, he's going to make it all back. And then there's a final shot at the end of the movie with all 11 of the burglars standing outside the Bellagio Casino and Hotel with like the fountains going out front there in Las Vegas and Claire DeLune playing in the background. And you don't think to yourself, I want to be like them. It's just a really good story. You kind of get lost in it. You get to the end and you think that was entertaining, but that's the extent of it. It's just entertaining. This story doesn't fit in that either because there's no resolution. What happens at the end? Does the manager actually lose his job? Is the master upset that he got swindled out of money? What happens to the debtors? There's absolutely no conclusion. So you can't just be listening for a good story either. But neither of those reasons would be the reasons that people gathered around Jesus to listen to him teach. They gathered around because here was this man traveling around who was proclaiming the kingdom of God and he had very good information for people as it dealt with their soul, the truth of their holy scriptures and how to interpret them, how it was that you were supposed to live in relationship to God, who God is, what it means to be saved, the good news of the fact that this Jesus is saying that despised and rejected and downcast people can be brought into relationship with God, they showed up to listen for that. And so they hear this parable, and Jesus launches into a story, and they're not looking for a hero or a villain. They're not looking to be entertained. They want to be taught. And that's what Jesus is doing. And so if we're going to listen with the ears and the minds of those who heard Jesus teach, we have to join them in that. Rejecting the subconscious desire for a hero and a villain, rejecting the subconscious desire for just a good story that's all well tied together, and listening to learn about our souls. That's sort of how we need to frame it. <clears throat> but then there's the challenge of the actual parable. Where does it end? That's the big knot in this. Look at verse eight. My CSB version says the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of the light in dealing with their own people. Mine begins with the master. Depending on your English translation, yours might say the Lord with a capital L, which would be to say that your translation is saying that Jesus starts to comment on the parable. If it's the master, then that is still inside the parable. Is the parable over or is it still continuing? That's one of the challenges here. The reason for that disparity in translation 
is because the word used for master or Lord is the word kurios. That's the Greek word for Lord. When you put the definite article on the front of that, the New Testament typically translates that the Lord. This is the one Lord that we're talking about. If you put a different article on the front of that, like we have in verse 13, where we're told that we cannot serve two masters, you end up with the word master. There's a definite article on this, but if you translate it as the Lord, verse eight begins with Jesus praising a man who just lied and cheated. At best, that's out of character with who Jesus is. At worst, that would be Jesus, the sinless savior, savior, sinning. You would have to then explain how it is that that statement could fit within the confines of who Jesus is supposed to be. Here's the challenge on the other side. If you translate it, the master, at the start of verse eight, and you say that the parable ends by the master praising the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly, what about the next sentence? For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of of light in dealing with their own people. Because verse nine is clearly Jesus commenting, and I tell you, make friends. So if verse eight starts with the master and ends the parable, then the master either has this moment of like reflection in the next sentence where he starts to pontificate about the children of the age and the children of the light, or Jesus starts interpreting the parable in mid-verse. It's very complicated. It's incredibly confusing. And it's why most of the time we read this and we say, I don't quite understand what's happening. And we sort of move on. That's why we started with the J.C. Rao quote that we started with. I'm gonna walk through how I split up the parable and I'll explain along the way. Verses one and two are the setup. There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Can you give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager? There's a rich man whose assets are managed by someone that he trusts, but who apparently is no longer doing a good job. The manager's integrity is called into question. The master's assets are in danger. And so in response, this wealthy man does what any savvy businessman would do. And he calls that manager in and says, I'm firing you. Give me an account of my wealth. Balance the books for me. Verses three and four then give you insight into the manager's thought process. Jesus did this with the younger brother back in the parable of the lost son. You heard him rehearse what it is that he was going to say to the father when he got home. Verses three and four do that for the manager. The manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. The manager knows he's not cut out for manual labor. He also has no interest in being poor and having to beg. There's your reason why Jesus's audience would not root for the manager. They're laborers. They're poor. Many of them probably beg. Here's this guy saying, I'm too good for both of those things. No one's rooting for the manager in this situation. And so the manager hatches a plan that will put people under obligation to him once he's officially been terminated from his employment. And then in verses five through seven, you see the plan in action. Summons each one of his master's debtors. You get two examples. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil. Take your invoice, sit down quickly and write 50. 
Next, he asks another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. Take your invoice and write 80. He calls in two debtors and he slashes their debt. One by 50%, one by 20%. Did he chop the interest off? Did he cut out his commission? Did he swindle the rich owner out of a chunk of profits? We're not sure. And apparently it doesn't matter to Jesus because Jesus doesn't comment on it. What we do know is that what the manager wants to do is put other people now in his debt. He's in trouble with the owner. Now he's gonna get fired and he wants to secure his future. And the way that he's gonna secure his future is by cutting a break to some of these people who owe something so that they will owe him a favor once he's unemployed. They're gonna owe me hospitality is essentially what the manager is after. Then there's verse eight. And I think verse eight, the first sentence is the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. The master looks at the manager and essentially says, well played. You were shrewd. It wasn't honest. It wasn't righteous. But you're already getting fired. I got some of the money back that I thought was sunk. Tip my cap. Be gone. The manager looks, or the master owner looks at the manager and essentially says, all right, well done, let's move on. And then in verse, the second sentence there, Jesus starts to interpret the parable. Could I be wrong there? Yes. Am I holding that interpretation with an iron fist? Heavens no. Could I get to... Uh, eternity with Jesus and we're like 800 years down the road and I decide finally to ask about Luke 16 and tell him what I thought about it and Jesus says not quite to which I will say well with a good heart I tried my best that's I'm trying my best with a difficult passage and the reason I say that I would be doing so with a clear conscience is because I do feel as though the conclusions that we can draw from the parable when taken that way are consistent with who God is and what the rest of his word has to say about stewardship, about what it means for God's people to steward God's blessings in God's world. And the first lesson from that, the overriding principle in that is that God is the master and we are his stewards. That's not to say that you should take an allegory from the master or the owner in this parable and say everything that we see about the owner is true about God. I'm talking about the overriding principle of the Lord being Lord of everything that he has created. He owns it, we steward. And if we don't start the conversation with that understanding, any discussion about stewardship totally breaks down. If we don't start with that understanding, our approach to how it is that we will personally handle all of God's blessings in our lives is bound to be warped by our own sin and our own flesh. We cannot have a biblical conversation about using God's blessings if we don't recognize first and foremost that we are not the owner of them. We're the stewards. Our flesh so badly wants to be the owner. We want to be the master but we're not. And when God saves you by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ and you enter into God's kingdom and start following Jesus, one of the foundational first things that the Holy Spirit has to rearrange in your life is your understanding of who is Lord 
your understanding of who is Lord of your life and your understanding of who is Lord of everything. God is the master. He is the owner. He is the Lord of all things, of the universe, of the galaxies a hundred billion miles away, of this earth, of the cattle on a thousand hills, of our lives, of our gifts, of our talents, of every single one of our days, of every season of life that comes in and out of your life, and of the very last pennies in your bank account. When it comes to understanding and applying this parable, we have to start with the shared recognition that we are the stewards of what God owns. So then in the second half of verse eight, Jesus starts to interpret the parable and that goes basically through the end of the passage. And it starts with a discussion about the children of this age and children of the light. Okay, followers of Jesus steward God's blessings in light of God's kingdom with an eye toward eternity. For the children of this age, Jesus says, are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. Jesus shifts our attention to the point of the parable and it has to do with two different kinds of people. Children of this age and children of the light. And Jesus says that the children of this age, represented by the manager in the parable, are shrewd in dealing with their affairs. They know exactly what they want and they pursue it wisely and efficiently, right? The manager knows what he wants. Security once he's unemployed. And he does what he has to do with disregard for how it affects anybody else in order to achieve that security. What Jesus is saying is that children of the light, so followers of Jesus, should be similarly wise and efficient in pursuing that which the kingdom causes them to long for. That with our blessings and with our resources, we would be wise and efficient in pursuing the things of the kingdom with eternity in view. Followers of Jesus are to be shrewd, not unrighteous, not sinful, but wise and efficient in the stewarding of God's blessings toward the things of eternity. And we're to be as efficient and wise about that as those in the world are about pursuing that which their flesh wants. Most of us know how to be shrewd in our worldly pursuits. We don't need to be taught that. When I was in college, in between, um, I think it was my sophomore and my junior year of college, I was working as an intern here uh, at LCF with the student ministry. I was lifeguarding at Clayview, and that was gonna make me enough money to be able to cover my expenses for the next year of college. But I also wanted a new guitar, and I knew exactly which guitar I wanted, exactly how much it was going to cost. So I took on a third job so I could make enough extra money to buy the guitar. My third job was with a company called Regis. They go into large stores and they do inventory so that they can tell the manager of that store exactly how much product and value is on their floor at any given time or in the warehouse. And so I would work from 4 a.m. until 10, counting the inventory at CVS stores all over Kansas City. So at the end of one of those mornings, I could look at the manager of that store and say, you've got like $430 of eyeliner on that rack. I worked that job until I had enough money to buy that guitar to the penny, and then I stopped showing up. I didn't tell anyone I wasn't going to show up. I didn't have a conversation with my boss. I just had three more shifts on the calendar currently, and I didn't show up to any of them. I got a phone call later. You're fired. You haven't shown up. I said, you can't really fire me. Obviously, I quit three shifts ago. I haven't shown up. 
I was shrewd. I knew what I wanted. I did what I had to do to get it. And I didn't really care how that affected anybody else. I've come a long way since then. I promise I'm not still like that. But we know how to be shrewd, wise, and efficient in pursuing the things that we want in this world. And Jesus is saying, followers of mine know what matters in the kingdom. And then they pursue those things with wisdom and efficiency and wholehearted abandon according to the blessings that I give them in their lives. We're to use what God has given us in order to pursue his will, his desires, his glory in his world for the sake of the glory of his gospel. And then in verses nine through 13, if you just kind of like shoved all of those together, Jesus gives some principles. What does like perfect biblical stewardship look like for the follower of Jesus? That's the picture that Jesus paints in the next section. I'm gonna start in verse 13 and work backwards. No servant can serve two masters since he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What does perfect biblical stewardship look like for a follower of Jesus? Well, principle number one, our stewardship wholeheartedly serves God. We have to surrender the idea that we can serve both our desires for money and stuff and our desires for the kingdom. I would push this even one step further. We have to surrender the idea that we can serve any of our fleshly desires, even outside of money and stuff, and pursue the things of the kingdom at the same time. They're going to run counter to one another at some point. They're going to clash and you will have to choose which one you will serve. Either the kingdom or your flesh. Eventually you will have to choose. And principle number one here is that a follower of Jesus is to settle it in their heart that when those things clash, you're gonna choose the king. Everything else falls underneath that goal. Yes, your money, that's the explicit illustration here, but also your time, your career, your family, your relationships, your influence, your platforms, the seasons that come in and out of your life, your gifts and talents and passions and skills. That's principle number one. Verses 10 to 12. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you've not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? What does perfect biblical stewardship look like for the follower of Jesus? Principle number two is this. Our stewardship illustrates our faithfulness. The way you steward, whether big or little, is evident in your actions. You can say one thing, but your actions are ultimately going to give you, give you away. That's a common refrain for Jesus, that your actions display the truth of your heart, that the fruit gives away the nature of the tree. And Jesus says that's true in the littlest acts of faithfulness and it's true in the big things of faithfulness. And if your heart is giving you away in the little, it's gonna give you away in the big too. Verse nine. Verse nine is not number two in this passage. It says this, and I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. What's gonna welcome me into eternal dwellings? The friends I made by my worldly wealth? The worldly wealth itself? This is a tricky verse to try to interpret and unpack. My understanding in light of this whole parable and this whole section is this. I think by making friends 
according to worldly wealth. I think Jesus is talking about generosity. That our stewardship in a perfect biblical sense is to be marked by generosity. And that when we make friends in this world by loving and caring for people with our money or with our time or with our gifts or our talents or our passions or whatever, that those decisions on earth will ripple forward into eternity. I think Jesus is saying that generosity can be the default position of a follower of Jesus. It's not some pie in the sky thing that maybe we'll achieve someday. This can be the reality that those who have been swept into the kingdom of God, we've been freed, freed from being ensnared by, the own, by our own greed that lurks in our heart. We've been freed thanks to the work of Jesus. And now we have as our standard, the outrageous generosity of Jesus Christ And he is a model for how we're to be generous with God's blessings. And it doesn't end there. We have the Holy Spirit that makes us want kingdom realities more than we want whatever cheap things, more money or stuff could possibly provide for us. This isn't just a moralistic lesson. Jesus' very life showed us the kind of generosity that's possible when the Holy Spirit and the realities of the kingdom take over in a follower of Jesus. Our stewardship is marked by generosity. Then there's an addendum in the passage. It starts in verse 14. Remember, it's a mixed audience. And so in verse 14, Jesus looks up at the Pharisees who we're told are lovers of money and who are listening to these things and scoffing at Jesus. And Jesus addresses them. And he's got a lesson for them. He says, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly affirmed by people or admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The law and the prophets were until John, that's John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Again, my interpretation here is that Jesus makes a statement to the Pharisees about the reality of the fact that they are lovers of money, that their actions give away the fact, not just with their stuff, that they are serving their own fleshly desires. And so Jesus says, God knows your hearts and that's a problem for you because the way you handle the law, the way you handle your position of influence, the way you handle your money, the way you treat people isn't about the kingdom of God. It isn't about bringing everyone in and beseeching them to come into the kingdom of God like Jesus says is now available. Instead, Pharisees, it's about you. You love your money. You love your rules. You're scoffing at me, the teacher. You're justifying yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows. And I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I'm the culmination of everything that God has been doing to bring his kingdom into the world. And I'm begging everyone urgently to enter into it. But you can't. It's like Jesus is daring the Pharisees at this point to get mad at him. He's undaunted by them, but he also loves them enough to tell them the truth. And so he does. And then there's verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Clearly, the passage is not a statement about marriage. Why is that there? 
end of one parable and the start of another. It's a message for the Pharisees and then smashed in here is this one statement. I think what's being illustrated is that the principle of stewardship extends beyond our finances. We are to be faithful stewards according to the master's definition of faithfulness. And that's the key. In all things, God, the master, determines what faithful stewardship entails. And we're to be faithful according to that definition of faithfulness with every blessing that God gives to us. Our finances, yes. Our gifts, our talents and skills, our time, our relationships, our careers, our influence, our parenting. If you're married, be faithful with that gift. If you're single, be faithful with that gift. You have a career, be faithful. You're good with words or you're good with art or music, be faithful with that. You're blessed athletically or intellectually, be faithful with that. You've got good business sense or you're savvy in a financial or an investing sense, be faithful. You have the gift of, gift of hospitality or you're a good teacher, be faithful and be faithful according to the definition that God sets for faithfulness with his blessings and then steward those in light of the kingdom with an eye toward eternity. There's the, there's the passage in my estimation. The application of this can get weird in a number of different ways. You could hear someone take the parable portion of this and say, well, clearly what this says is that God helps those who help themselves. Look at the manager. Clearly God helps those who help themselves. Is that what Jesus is trying to say? You could hear a prosperity gospel preacher take verses 10 to 12, whoever's faithful in little is faithful in much, and say, give me $1,000. And if you're faithful in giving me that $1,000, God will return even more money to you. Look, I'll tell you with certainty. The only thing you can know for sure if you give the preacher $1,000 is that the preacher has $1,000. There's no guarantee that God is going to return that to you in some form or fashion. The prosperity gospel warps these passages in that kind of way. When the understanding is muddy, we misapply. What the parable provides for us is an illustrative form of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount teachings. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Faithful stewards take the blessings of God, seek first the kingdom, understand that life is about more than the stuff that they have, and seek to store up for themselves, quote unquote, treasures in heaven, rather than storage bins full of treasures of stuff here on earth. I'm gonna draw four application points out of verse 15 really quickly. He told them, that's the Pharisees, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. Courageous assessment of our stewardship provides insight into the state of our discipleship. We can courageously allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts in these kinds of ways and the places where greed still wins out, whether with our finances or with anything else, we can just allow that to be a picture of our discipleship and invite the Holy Spirit to transform us. We don't need to be ashamed of it, Jesus is addressing the reality that this is an idol that all of us struggle with and we can just be courageous and honest about it and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. How do we do that? Number one, begin with prayer and honest reflection. If you've been sitting here over the course of this morning and you've, or you're listening on the podcast and you thought to yourself, okay, Tim, but God knows my heart. That's not an encouragement to the Pharisees. 
That's an accusation. Yes, God knows your heart. Bad news, you probably don't. But the good news is that God is faithful. The Holy Spirit is faithful to illuminate for us the places where sin is winning out if we would only go to him in honest prayer and ask him to show us that and then be courageous and humble and repentant with the results. Number two, established discipline, or established disciplined giving as an act of idol smashing. You could do disciplined giving in the context of money, certainly, but also in the context of any other gift. Routine giving and stewarding of our gifts is something that the Bible lays out for God's people. Why? So that the pastor can get paid? So that the building can be big and fancy? So that the church's PR efforts can be flashy? No. In the Old Testament, God encourages his people to give. The standard is the tithe. In the New Testament, we're encouraged to give, but the standard changes. It becomes more lavish. We're supposed to give according to the pattern that's been set for us in the giving of the Son. And the reason why is because God loves you enough to help you not become ensnared by the idol of greed. The Bible commands us to give as a way to smash that idol inside of ourselves. Commands us to give as a means by which God then takes what his people gives and fulfills his purposes to the ends of the earth. When we give and we allow the Lord to break that idol inside of our hearts, God takes that and then uses it to fulfill his purpose to proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth. He's faithful to take what we give and to use it to accomplish his purposes. Number three, allow discipline giving to set the stage for spontaneous generosity. As you give in a regular way, money starts to lose its hold and its sway over you. When we get in the habit of seeing our finances or any other of our gifts as something that doesn't belong to us, then we get comfortable with the idea that we can give those things away. And when the disciplined rhythm is set, it becomes easier for your heart to act spontaneously. This money isn't mine, so I can give it to this particular thing or this particular person or this particular initiative. This time isn't mine, so I can serve in this way. This talent isn't mine, so I can use it as an offering to the Lord. This business, this relationship, this influence, this platform, this opportunity, this season of life, this skill, these children, this marriage, my singleness, Whatever it is, it's not mine. And I'm totally free to lift that up to the Lord for the sake of his glory so that he might fulfill his will and his purposes for the sake of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And when the disciplined rhythm is there, it's easier to do those things spontaneously. And then last, and this sort of completes the circle, continue to lean into the routine of prayer and honest reflection. On this side of heaven, in wealthy, comfortable societies like ours, I don't think we'll ever get total freedom from this particular idol in this particular struggle. We need to be constant in our prayer, consistent in our own assessment and allowing the Holy Spirit to search us and continual in our humility. Those are necessary rhythms for a follower of Jesus who wants to steward faithfully and wisely and efficiently for the sake of God and for the sake of his kingdom. And our tendency with our idols is to be lax with them. Lax with them because we think we have them under control or lax with them because we know we don't have them under control and it's easier to ignore them. But we can lean in. We can be honest in prayer and in reflection and allowing the Holy Spirit to search us and to mold us into the image of Jesus. Followers of Jesus steward God's blessings in light of God's kingdom with eternity in view. I wanna end with this. 
this issue of biblical stewardship as it relates to finances and everything else has been something that has been a real wrestle for me in my adult Christian life. I did not grow up going to church, and so I didn't grow up with a framework for what this sort of giving looks like. So I got my first real adult job, and those first paychecks came, and they had bigger numbers on them than I had ever seen with my name on the check before. And I remember getting those first couple of checks and literally driving to the bank and thinking, I have finally made it. Like, there's finally something in the bank account. And I got two or three months down the road with that, and um, the associate pastor who was my supervisor at my first job, Gashland Presbyterian Church, his name was Dave. And I remember him asking me, how are you doing stewarding your paychecks? He didn't ask because he knew the answer. Like he wasn't checking on my tithe. He asked because he knew the challenge that it is to come out of college where you have no money into a career where all of a sudden you've got more money than maybe you've ever had before and to do that well. And I looked at him and I said, Dave, I'm not gonna lie to you. I haven't given a penny of this and I would need help in order to do that because I've never given before. I didn't grow up in church. I have no framework for this. And we entered into a rhythm where he would lovingly and gently and graciously ask me every month, how is this going? How are you doing? And in my time at Gashland, I got the discipline figured out. And then I met Melody. And Melody and I got married. And I feel very good about myself because I've established the rhythm. And I marry someone who's never met a possession that she's not willing to give away. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I finally got this under control. And God's using Melody to look at me and say, you have not even begun this process. You've established a habit and that habit is good, but that idol still runs wild inside of you. And it's not that Melody and I ever fought over these things. It's that I constantly warred inside my soul with the fact that I wanted to be owner of my stuff. And that I had just gotten comfortable with the fact that maybe I'm not the owner of 10% of it, but I'm the owner of the other 90. And from that point forward to this very day, I wrestle with this idol. That I'm not the owner of any of it. And whether it's my finances or anything else, I lift those things up to the Lord. I try to steward them faithfully as God determines what is faithful so that he would accomplish his purposes and his plans and his goals and his desires in his world. And that he loves me enough to not let me be slave to my greed. And that he would encourage me to give and he would bring Melody and I into marriage with one another so that that could be sanctified and refined inside of me that I might have freedom. And so I'm able to give this sermon today from a place as a pastor that I'm very grateful for. LCF has a fantastic financial history. We have no debt on our building or anywhere else. The Lord has been very faithful in terms of the giving that people in this congregation do. I do not need to stand up here with strings attached and say, now, please give so we make the budget. I'm so grateful that I don't have to do that. I can stand up here as your pastor and say lovingly and genuinely, I just don't want you to be slave to this. And in our culture and in our society, in America in 2022, I'm not sure there's a stronger idol than the idol of greed. But God wants you to be free from that. And he's provided the means by which you can be free. And there's something so much better on the other side. And so I'm not looking for like big checks this week. 
I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would enter into the life of our congregation and set us free from those idols so that we might steward faithfully as he defines faithfulness, that he might use that to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Amen? Amen. Let's close and worship together.